Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. Just before we kick off, I want to draw your attention to the link at the top of the pod. It says eventbrite.ie, and it is for Podcast for Palestine, which is on January the 28th in the Sugar Club in Dublin. There's going to be a great night's entertainment, some serious topics discussed, and some very special guests lined up. Grab the tickets, they're only 15 quid, and all proceeds are going to Gaza. It's a great cause and a great night's entertainment, and I hope to see lots and lots of you there. Now, a quick word on the podcast you're about to listen to. It was a fantastic conversation with the retired ambassador, Chaz Freeman, um, who has decades of experience of the Middle East and international diplomacy and geopolitics and found himself targeted by the Israeli lobby, IPAC, when he was appointed by the Obama administration to a senior uh, security role. So it was wonderful to get his insight into what is happening in the US and what is happening to disconnect from US politics and how the streets are feeling about what's happening in Gaza. Finally and crucially, I need to ask you to join us. We are an independent podcast platform. The Tortoise Shack has no ads, no sponsors. We rely entirely on you to pay it forward and keep it free for everyone so we can continue to have conversations like the one you're about to listen to. The easiest way to help us out is to click the link at the bottom of the podcast that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise I say it all the time. We are activists first and foremost, and this is the easiest bit of activism you can do. That fiver a month from you is crucial into keeping mics on, lights on, bills paid, and gives us the time and space we need to do the research to get the guests to, to bring you conversations that we don't hear enough of in mainstream channels. So one more time, patreon.com forward slash tortoise I'm shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Yusuf Jamal speaking to you from Istanbul. Today is January 5, um, 2024, and it's 4 p.m. here in in Istanbul. Uh, Welcome to PALcast and Today, we have a very um, special guest, Ambassador Chaz Freeman, who's joining us from the United States to talk about um, regional uh, politics, but also domestic politics in the U.S. in light of the the, the Gaza um, war and what's happening uh, back home. Um, I have received, you know, troubling and distressing news of Israel circling in Maghazi refugee camp where my sister uh, lives with with her five kids uh, and the situation is is getting worse for people in, in central Gaza as Israel is invading um, at least four refugee camps uh, there. I'm very delighted to be joined uh, by Ambassador uh, Freeman and uh, of course uh, our great producer uh, in Dublin, Tony Groves and, and, and my co-host Helena Coben, uh, the president of Just World Educational who's joining uh, us from Washington uh, DC. Uh, Ambassador Freeman is a senior retired US official who worked as the US ambassador to Saudi Arabia. And he uh, was uh, nominated to be the uh, uh, national director um, of the National Intelligence Council under the uh, Obama administration. Uh, but his name was was vetoed due to, due to um, you know pressure from, from from the Israeli lobby in, in Washington DC. We're very delighted to to have you, Ambassador Freeman, with us. Pleased to be on, uh, Yusuf, and I look forward to our conversation. 
Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, since the start of, of the uh, genocide in Gaza, and this is how I describe it, and I've seen it firsthand based on what my family is telling me, they're being starved. The U.S. and Israel are not on the same page vis-a-vis -vis Gaza. And especially the next day in Gaza after the war ends, which I think will be the last day in Netanyahu's political career. Um, how do you see these differences between the U.S. and, and, and Israel in terms of depopulation of, of, of Gaza, what to do with Gaza next, who's going to govern Gaza, what's going to happen to Palestinians there? Well, there are multiple differences. Um, I think you have to differentiate the administration uh, from uh, uh, the American people uh, because the reactions are quite different. Uh, we've seen in the administration uh, many uh, staffers, some of them quite senior, uh, resign in protest uh, or join demonstrations against the administration's policy. Uh, with respect to Gaza, the, uh, the issue uh, very clearly is genocide. Um, there is no question at all that what Israel is doing meets the legal definition of genocide. And in fact, um, the earlier uh, application of that label uh, to events in Xinjiang, China, uh, is, is, has been shown to be ridiculous. Um, now we see what real genocide is. Uh, I don't think the administration is sincere in its opposition to the uh, ethnic cleansing of Gaza uh, and the relocation or transfer, as the Israelis put it, of the population. Uh, because very early on, uh, uh, the Secretary of State, Mr. Blinken, uh, was in Cairo trying to persuade the uh, Egyptians to take uh, Gazan re refugees in. Um, Mr. Biden attempted to make the same case uh, to Jordan and Egypt, and they de declined to see him. And so I think the, um, the administration uh, probably is talking to the Israelis. Uh, typically, when things are done for Israel in Africa, the United States bankrolls it. Um, I suspect that renting space in Chad, which is a country that is deeply troubled, or the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which is even more deeply troubled, um, requires funding, and that that funding is not going to come from Israel, but from American taxpayers as Israel sees it. Um, I would say um, that the most interesting and hopeful development in all this is uh, a shift in public opinion, especially among young people in the United States, that is being registered in the polls. Uh, this issue may cost Mr. Biden the election uh, because he's down by about 15%, 20% uh, among people between 18 and 30. Um, and uh, their attitudes toward this whole uh, Israel-Palestine struggle are very different than the older generation. Um, and I think when this is over, uh, I'm not answering all of your questions, of course, but uh, when this is over, uh, Israel will have lost the protective cover that the Holocaust gave it. Uh, Israelis were seen as the descendants or uh, the victims of a Holocaust in, in Europe, and they had natural sympathy internationally as a result including among most Americans. The younger generation 
is watching what's happening in Gaza, and they see Israel as the perpetrator of genocide and the Holocaust, not as the victim. And so I think that the political context of the struggle between uh, for Palestinian self-determination uh, and Israeli security is going to be very different uh, when this war ends. And the sooner it ends, of course, the better. Thank you. Charles, Thank you. Charles, if this, I could you... just jump in here. Sorry. Um, sorry, Yusuf. I c completely agree with everything that, that Chaz Freeman has said about the shift here inside U.S. politics and attitudes, but there's also a big global shift. I mean, Back in 1991, when you were, you know, in, in the Pentagon at, at the time, the U.S. Oh, no, you were in you were in Saudi Arabia at the time. The United States was able to pull together a complete wall to wall global um, coalition in order to push Saddam Hussein's forces out of Kuwait. Now, you know, it can barely cobble together half a dozen European nations to support its position in the Red Sea. Things are very different. And do you see a real possibility that actually the US veto could be nullified or, or neutered by the emerging new forces of the global majority in the way that in 1956, the UK and French veto that they enjoyed, they still enjoy at the Security Council, was nullified by President Eisenhower. Um, I think there's no question that Israel has achieved pariah status internationally as a result of its actions in Gaza and the West Bank, I might note, less reported uh, but equally horrifying um, pogroms conducted by settlers. Um, and it is taking the United States down with it, um, because it's very clear, uh, as an Israeli general has indelicately put it, that if the United States were to suspend or halt arms uh, transfers to Israel, Israel would not be able to continue this war. And what is this war? It is not a war on Hamas. Uh, it is a war against Palestinians. Uh, and it is prop improperly called by the mainstream media the Israel-Hamas War. Uh, it is Israel-Palestine War, and the war is one of a, a military Goliath against uh, a beleaguered, poor, um, almost unarmed David. Uh, so I think uh, uh, Israel's image is being radically changed internationally, and American complicity in Israel's genocide is changing the American image. And I, too, have noted the difficulty with which the United States has tried to convene a flotilla in the Red Sea. I, d I think the convening power, the leadership power, if you will, of the United States, which had already taken some hits as a result of the Ukraine war, which much of the world wanted to sit out, uh, has now been very much further damaged and has reached a low point. And I think this is uh, uh, something that is affecting uh, the foreign policy establishment in Washington, but from the staff level up, uh, politicians have a way of um, surviving their own hypocrisy, uh, inhaling their own propaganda, uh, and uh, and they're doing it. I note the other day um, when 
two of the most extremist Israeli ministers, one, Mr. Smotrich, whom uh, Yusuf mentioned, and the other, Ben Kvir, um, talked about exterminating and expelling Palestinians. There was a statement from the State Department spokesman saying, well, we condemn this. Uh, they shouldn't say that. Uh, but they didn't say Israel shouldn't do it. Um, and they seemed apologies, to ambassadors. Seemed to hide. Isn't that exactly the point, though? They phrased it in such a way as that we almost like chastising the, a child for for speaking out of turn, but not telling the child not to do it again. And that's right, right. This is embarrassing. They were expressing embarrassment yeah. and hiding behind a Biden conversation with Netanyahu that nobody knows the content of. Um, claiming that this did not represent Israeli official policy, when clearly it does. So the level of hypocrisy, double standards that have been applied, um, is uh, very crippling to American credibility internationally, and it has declining credibility among youth in the United States. Can I make just one quick point? It's not a question. It's just a point that, that the UN Special Rapporteur for Housing, Raj, who I spoke to, um, did, did tweet out that the forcible transfer of the Gaza, Gazan population is an act of genocide given the high numbers of children. Congolese or other state officials will be guilty of aiding and abetting genocide if they agree to any transfer of population. So it's very much a case whereby this idea that we're going to now call it voluntary um, relocation or whatever term they want to put on it, um, you know, someone a senior in the in the UN is saying no, that that cannot be that cannot be the case. And countries, and I, I only say this because across the water from us in the UK, they have this plan to send uh, migrants to Rwanda, and it keeps Rwanda, yeah, and yeah. it keeps falling apart because legally they cannot do it. <laughs> and and you know, so I just want to point that out that it's not it's not yeah. Yeah, it, there's already precedent for it. We've seen what it's done in the UK. This the Rwanda plan. This is this is it on steroids. But anyway, go. Sorry, Helen. I know you wanted to come in. Mm-hmm. No, I I think that's really important to note. Um, I also just want to say that we're having this conversation during a week in which there have been a lot of additional tensions, not just you know the rising of tension in in the Red Sea between the US and and the Houthis. Interestingly, the the U.S. Navy seems to be backing away from that a little bit. I don't know what you think about that, Chaz. But the other thing is, obviously, the assassinations we've had. Um, the assassination of Saleh al-Aruri in, in Beirut on Tuesday. Was it Tuesday? And then um, the assass- that was almost certainly done by the Israelis. Let's say it was done by the Israelis. And then the U.S. military assassinated these leaders of the Iraqi Popular Mobilization Forces in Baghdad, which I think is going to cause huge ructions um, for for the Americans' presence, the American military presence in, in Iraq. And then you had this horrible terror attack in in Iran. So, the whole region seems to be feeling this this fallout. Um, what what do you think is going to come of all this, um, Chaz? Well, that, that's a whole series of questions. Um, <laughs> uh, the the uh, murderous attack at uh, the tomb of uh, Suleiman Suleimani in Tehran has now been claimed by the Mujahideen of Khalq, uh, so uh, or sorry uh, by uh, the Islamic State. Uh, so. Um, the initial suspicion that that was uh, either Israel or a proxy for Israel uh, seems to be wrong. Um, but uh, it's very clear that the other two assassinations you mentioned, uh, 
uh, Al Aruri in Beirut uh, in particular, represented an, um, uh, an Israeli effort to expand the war. Um, they want to in- implicate the United States in the war. Um, the United States had two aircraft carriers in the region, one of which has left. Um, and they were there, apparently, to deter uh, retaliation by Hezbollah. Uh, yesterday, uh, or was it Yes, yesterday, I believe, uh, Wednesday, um, Nasrallah, the um, Hezbollah leader, uh, gave a typically long rambling speech in which he um, stood by his earlier pledge to um, uh, take decisive action if there were an assassination on Lebanese soil. Um, he's put himself in a box. Uh, he is to speak today again. I don't know if he has. Um, uh, I think he's really between a rock and a hard place because on the one hand, he has to reestablish the credibility of Hezbollah's deterrent capacity. And on the other hand, he doesn't really want a war with Israel. Nobody does. Um, so um, they know how horrible it would be um, having experienced it before. And I would say um, the Israelis, having experienced Hezbollah, which is quite formidable and has a large battle-hardened uh, force, battle-hardened in Syria, uh, uh, it would be far more formidable than Hamas, which has proven to be much tougher than uh, the Israelis estimated. So that's part of it. Um, the, as for the United States, uh, the United States has been trying very hard to prevent the expansion of this war, uh, but foolish actions like the attack in Baghdad <clears throat> jeopardize that. Um, and uh, so I think the danger of a wider war uh, is quite apparent. Uh, it involves not only the, the Houthis, who are taking their own actions in the Red Sea, uh, the United States being very careful not to attack the Houthis uh, directly uh, and perhaps bring Iran into the war, uh, but it also involves artillery exchanges, missile exchanges between Hezbollah in southern Lebanon and Israelis. Uh, the uh, Hezbollah having attempted to tie down Israeli troops and divert them uh, from Gaza. Uh, and I guess I should say that um, uh, I think Mr. Netanyahu, Yusuf, you, you said uh, when the war ends, that would be his last day in office. I think he understands that. I think he's quite desperate to save himself from criminal prosecution uh, and the end of his um, infamous uh, political career. Uh, he, he remains committed to what he's always been committed, which is preventing the emergence of a two-state solution. Uh, and uh, he, um, uh, but he's got problems. Uh, the Israeli economy is contracting. Uh, they've had to remove five brigades from Gaza, uh, which were reservists, uh, in order to uh, beef up the civilian high-tech economy, uh, which is basically dried up. Um, we've had, I think, a half a million Israelis emigrate since October 7th. Uh, and uh, whether they're coming back or not, we don't know. Uh, and uh, the, the people who are uh, active in Israel more and more are people with no conscience, utterly inhumane, uh, who have uh, completely dehumanized the, their, the Palestinians in their own eyes. And we now have reliable reports from Gaza of uh, gangland-type executions by Israeli soldiers. Uh, 
of people they have taken captive. So um, this is uh, this is a horror on every level. Um, and Mr. Netanyahu finally has not been responsive to the demand of the families of the hostages uh, to uh, take effective action with Hamas uh, to secure their release. And one has to wonder, after uh, three months, whether how many of them are still still alive. Um, yes, the- yes. Ambassador Freeman, thank you. I, I think you made a very good point about uh, you know the executions and including a woman who was thrown from the fifth floor in Shijaiya by the Israeli military and uh, yesterday uh, four children were abducted from their mother in Maghazi uh, refugee camps so we have all these horrors and what baffles me I've been to the United States um, many times and uh, I met a lot of Americans Uh, I spoke with many people, especially young people. You have mentioned the opposition to the genocide in Gaza by young people uh, in the United States, uh, by even you know officials in the Biden administration, and the possibility that Biden is going to lose the next election because of Gaza, and this is a high possibility, especially in, in swinging states, But despite this, the Biden administration is still defending Israel. They're saying, we do not have a proof that Israel is using white phosphorus in Gaza. We do not have a proof that Israel is committing a genocide in Gaza or killing civilians in, 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 in mass. Despite this, you know, Biden and his administration are still defending Israel. And this puffles me. They approved the sale of uh, 45,000 shells Uh, to, to Israel without going through um, the U.S. Congress. And one of these shells fell on my family's home. Thanks God it did not uh, explode. But why? Like, as a Palestinian from Gaza, it baffles me why the American administration is still supporting Israel. Well, I think um, the answer to that um, requires uh, context, um, just as understanding the Israel-Palestine struggle and it requires a context. It didn't start on October 7th, as a lot of people seem to imagine. Um, so I think you have several factors at work here. For the general public, a great deal of ignorance. Uh, they really don't understand anything about the struggle. Uh, American history, uh, I'm part American Indian, but for the most part, Americans are ignorant of the genocide that the European settlers committed and, and see it Uh, as a as don't don't condemn it um so uh, there's an a sympathy with settlers in Israel which is totally misplaced um and then you have uh, two other factors uh maybe they are the same at the root uh, mr biden who is a um self proclaimed zionist uh, happens to be the largest single recipient of zionist campaign donations in history, in the Congress. Uh, and he's in a presidential campaign, and contrary to what uh, politicians would like you to believe, uh, half of the campaign contributions for the Democrat, for the uh, for, for candidates in general come from plutocrats, from the very wealthy, and, and another half come uh, from small donations by ordinary voters. Uh, actually, the parties lose money on the small donations 
because the people who manage the collection of those small donations take a very hefty administrative fee. Uh, but 70% of the Democratic Party's donations are from wealthy Jews. 70%. Uh, so if you, um, if you are a politician and your main concern, uh, paralleling Mr. Netanyahu, is to stay in office, uh, then uh, you have to kowtow to these people. Um, and uh, once you start doing that, you begin to convince yourself uh, that what you're doing is the right thing, uh, even if you may have had doubts at the beginning. So there's blindness, ignorance, and, but that what is happening now is erasing that. Social media, uh, the Israelis have been very careful to shut Gaza down in terms of media coverage, but they haven't been able to do it entirely. And uh, there have been some very brave journalists who have been able to report from there, many dead journalists too, and um, the story is coming out, and it is educating people, uh, and uh, it is countering uh, Israeli propaganda. All of this stuff that the IDF put out at the outset of the October 7 uh, Hamas jailbreak um, about baked and beheaded babies and fetuses ripped from women's wombs and rapes and so forth, um, is now greeted in many quarters with disbelief. You know, some ignorant people or people who only hear one side of the story in their synagogue believe it, perhaps. Uh, but um, Israel's word has been greatly devalued. The propaganda that it has put out has been very crude. Um, and it reflects the fact that um, Israel has relied on silencing its critics with char charges of anti-Semitism, which means that um, the Israelis never hear the other side of the story. Uh, because who wants to be tarred and feathered uh, by a charge of anti-Semitism? Nobody. Um, and, and so, um, uh, but I think, you know, frankly, um, uh, as I said at the outset, the Israelis as perpetual victims rather than perpetrators of genocide uh, is over. That is over. And the charge of anti-Semitism will not carry the sting I, I, that it wants I think to. It's, I think that charge, Ambassador, if I put it to you politely, has lost its weight in most other countries beyond the United States now. You know, right. like, I mean, there's no, there's no fear now of saying we can have... We can. I can talk to my um, Jewish friends and and brothers and sisters and and support th them and 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 believe that they have their their own individual rights to practice their faith. And they will know that when I stand up and I and I and I say we need to stop this genocide, they do not get upset with me and and call me a, an anti-Semite in much the same way as unfortunately in parts of the U.S. it maintains. I have one silly question, and I and then I promise I won't I won't interrupt again. The issue, obviously, we're we're less than I think the Iowa caucuses are just about what a couple of weeks away now. Where we've a, a we've a presidential election. You've alluded to the fact that it right now it's a hot button topic, as they'd say. The alternatives to the Biden administration they're not a whole lot better. Um, is there any? Can we? Is there anybody who you would identify as someone who was making? Uh, at least soundings towards moving to a more um, balanced political uh, this, 
area for the, within US politics because I just don't see it from where I'm sitting in Dublin. I don't see it either, unfortunately. Um, I think the preferred choice in this election is going to be none of the above. Um, I am thinking about writing in Millard Fillmore as my candidate. Um, Millard Fillmore was probably the worst president of the 19th century. Had one term, it was a terrible term, um, but he has several merits. He meets the constitutional requirements to be president. He's over 35 and he was native born. Uh, Constitution doesn't say you have to be alive to be president. Uh, Joe Biden may be testing uh, that thesis as we speak. Um, very bold, uh, very and, bold. <laughs> and so uh, so it may be that um, Millard Fillmore is, after all, I mean, the man, you know, he had a terrible first term, but by right of seniority, he should have a better second term than either Biden or Trump, shouldn't he? I mean, it, it all makes sense to me in a strange way. I, uh, that's uh, not to be facetious. On the issue of Gaza genocide, Israeli cruelty, uh, apartheid in Israel. Um, I don't see anybody in the political spectrum uh, who has much promise to change the policy. Uh, but I think uh, the ground is shifting underneath the politicians as we speak. You know, um, I'd like to end, come... In the end, they, 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 they know which way the wind is blowing and, and, and they, they like to fly with the wind rather than against it. I'd like to come back into what happened in 1956 just briefly. I was four years old at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, Anthony Eden, the Prime Minister of Britain, who was a weird ch character who strangely spoke Arabic, but um, he thought he understood the Arabs and he made this plan to overthrow Jamal Abdel Nasser, the, the president of Egypt, in conjunction with the Israelis and the French. And he launched this, you know, plot which involved Israel um, invading Gaza as it happens and the whole of Sinai and going over to the Suez Canal and then the British and French would come in as um, a so-called peacekeeping force and regain control of, of the Suez Canal and overthrow Nasser. That was Eden's plan. And I think at the time... Many British people supported it. You know, it looked like a bold, late imperial move to like restore British whatever in, in the region. And Eisenhower at the time said, no, that's, you know, there were many reasons, geopolitical reasons that, that Eisenhower was very opposed to that. And he just pulled the plug on the British pound and forced um, Anthony Eden and the French and the Israelis to, to pull back. And, and it was kind of the end of British influence. It, it was the beginning of the end of British influence in that region that was then called the Middle East. And then after that, everybody in Britain, as I understand it, said, Oh, well, we were opposed to the war all along. You know, I mean, it's like if you go to South Africa now, it's really hard to find a, a white South African who will admit to ever having supported apartheid. Um, so isn't there a real possibility, given what we have discussed, what you have discussed about the attitudes of young Americans toward, you know, Israel's genocide and toward the U.S.-Israeli relationship in general, that if the global majority were to really act forcefully through economic or other means 
to for to to counter to neutralize the U.S. veto in the United Nations, that suddenly most Americans would say, "Well, we were actually opposed to the genocide all along." Um, that could happen. <laughs> uh, we do not have an Eisenhower in the White House. Uh, not a man of his conscience. Not a man of his impeccable anti-colonialist credentials. Uh, not someone who had dealt firsthand with difficult people like Montgomery and uh, on the British uh, side. Um, and um, uh, so this is a very different um, administration. Uh, the, uh, you have, however, reminded me that I did not address one of the implicit questions that you'd asked earlier, uh, which is uh, uh, to take note of the fact that one of the, the uh, uh, parts of collateral damage, if you will, from what is happening, uh, is the United Nations disempowerment. Um, the United Nations is being shown to be completely feckless, unable to uh, uh, concert anything. The General Assembly may pass sensible resolutions about ceasefires, about the U.S. veto uh, and the obstinate abstentions of countries like Britain in the uh, Security Council, uh, frustrates this. So what is the answer to that? Um, I think there are many answers beginning to emerge. One is, if the UN is like the League of Nations, impotent, people began to say, well, why shouldn't we replace it? Um, why should, why do we have to stick with an organization which enshrines the five victors of World War II at the apex of international power and excludes uh, countries like India, Japan, Germany? Um, why, why have two European representatives uh, Western European representatives, Britain and France. Um, so I'm seeing uh, an effort being made to first to do ad hoc conferencing. Uh, and I think it's very possible that the uh, BDS movement, the movement to boycott, disinvest, and, and sanction Israel will find a foothold in ad hoc conferencing. And that that BDS will extend to the U.S. In fact, it is already doing so. We see uh, boycotts of American companies in countries like Malaysia, uh, but not just Malaysia. Um, co American companies having to rename themselves to disguise their American character uh, because of the fallout from the apparent complicity of the United States in genocide. So I don't think this is without hope, but I do think the, uh, uh, that the international mechanisms to deal with horrors like this and Ukraine, too, I should add, uh, have been shown to be faulty. Um, and uh, Sorry, intelligent people should be thinking about alternatives. I just want to make a couple of quick points. Again, not a question, just it's interesting. Dublin Airport, up the road from me here, uh, the Starbucks is now called Vista Coffee. Uh, because, uh, they, yeah, there you are. And, um, and I saw only today the BBC said McDonald's is worried that the misinformation campaign about Israel Gaza is, is hurting it. There was no misinformation campaign. McDonald's pledged thousands of meals to IDF soldiers. All that's happened is the chickens have come home to roost and, uh, it's hitting their bottom line in other countries where they didn't believe it would, uh, to, to the point where, three kilometers from where I'm sitting, people regularly stand outside with a Palestinian flag and let people know that McDonald's supported the genocide that's taking place in Israel. Sure. So those things do give and, us a little bit of hope. And Howard Schultz, who, who my, my wife's uh, mother's surname was Starbuck from 
Nantucket, Whalers, and uh, Howard Schultz stole the name for his coffee chain. Uh, and he came out immediately in support of We Stand with Israel, and that has cost Starbucks a lot. Um, so I think that um, there is a possibility both of popular action as there was against South African apartheid, but it takes time. Um, and it takes time for politicians to recognize uh, that the winds of change are blowing in a different direction. So uh, it'll take a while. Thank you. Thank you. I think also uh, it's important to highlight that Magdalene's in, in Malaysia is taking BDS Malaysia to court and its president, Dr. Nazari Ismail. And uh, I don't have to, to emphasize that. Uh, I wish them a uh, very bad luck in court. Um, but, you know, I want to conclude with, with this question and like the fantasies that Israeli politicians have about Gaza, the population of Gaza. Um, it started in 1969 with a plan by Moshe Dayan to send young people on a, a one-way ticket to Latin America. And um, this plan was uncovered and it failed. Uh, they were only um, able to send uh, only like dozens of, of Palestinians from Gaza to Latin America. Um, and again, the discussion about UNRWA and establishing another humanitarian body to take care of humanitarian work in Gaza. And Israeli politicians have always talked about UNRWA and dismantling uh, UNRWA. W what are your thoughts on, on these two issues? Well, you raise a very important dimension here, which is the Palestinian diaspora. There are Palestinians, very substantial Palestinian communities in countries like Chile, Brazil, um, and the United States, um, uh, and elsewhere. And my surmise, it is only a guess, is that the horrors the Israelis have inflicted on Palestinians in Gaza and what the settlers are doing in the West Bank um, will energize Palestinian opposition to Israel in a way that is very unfortunate. We may see a return to the 1960s in terms of uh, exchanges of terror, uh, terrorist acts. Um, I think when, Helena, you raised the, the issue of assassinations, uh, assassinations have been a habitual tool of Israeli policy from the very outset. Um, um, the, uh, the book, um, by, uh, uh, Ronan Bergman, um, uh, Rise and Strike First documents about 2,700 assassinations of inconvenient people. Uh, we should so mention at the beginning, like, was, was the UN negotiator Count Folk Bernadotte, who, who was, uh, killed in, was well, it 1948? You know, I mean, Israel, in was born, Israel was born in terrorism. Uh, I might say Ireland had something to do with that too. Uh, but, um, and, you know, um, my ancestors who fought the British were regarded as terrorists. If you win, you're not a terrorist. If you lose, you are. Uh, so um, I think uh, my point is this uh, that Israel has generated a vastly larger pool of hateful people uh, who have a desire for revenge. And some of them will pursue it. Uh, and I would not want to be an Israeli wandering around the world, in the world of the future, uh, if Israel continues on the course that it's on. Uh, because uh, if Israel finds assassinations 
just, legal, proper, Palestinians have the same, may come to the same judgment. Uh, and uh, so uh, I think also if Israel expels Palestinians from Gaza in the way that it proposes to do, uh, then Palestinians will have far less to lose. Yusuf, your relatives will not be in Gaza uh, or the West Bank. They will be somewhere else um, and safer from the IDF uh, and the settlers. So I think we're looking at um, the dawn of a very different atmosphere, context for the Israel-Palestine struggle, and it's one that is very unfavorable to Israel, not, uh, not favorable at all. Do you think that Israeli politicians can kick out UNRWA from Gaza? And if they can, like, what are the like legal procedures that could be taken by you know the UN against Israel in this regard? I don't think there's any legal means by which they can do that. Um, I think their strategy is very clear. They will starve people to the point where people have no will to resist expulsion. But then where will they go? Uh, Egypt has made it very clear that the Sinai is not going to be opened to Palestinian settlement. Um, there are enough problems in the Sinai already for Egypt. And, of course, uh, Hamas is allied with the Muslim Brotherhood, which is the enemy of the al-Sisi regime in Cairo. So um, I don't see how it can work practically. And the, to the extent that Israel ends up murdering more Palestinians, it will simply aggravate its own illegitimacy in the eyes of the world and uh, generate more violent opposition. Uh, there are more terrorists being born now among Palestinians, I'm sure, than ever would have been the case if Israel had not behaved so abominably. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Tony and, and Helena, if you have uh, nothing to, to add, I would like to end on, on this note and thank uh, Ambassador Freeman for joining uh, us today. Uh, thank you, Tony, of uh, the Eco Chamber podcast from Dublin and Helena Coben from Just Word Education and from Washington, D.C. And I would like to thank our uh, sponsors, the Hashem Sani Center for Palestine Studies at the University uh, of Malaya. And I'm looking forward to uh, speaking to you uh, next week. <laughs>